Our second scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We celebrate the written word of scripture. Thanks be to God. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Loving God in the blessing of your word, may we be changed and transformed that we might go out to bless the world you love so very much. Amen. Looking back, I've noticed that my high school and college English teachers assigned a goodly number of dystopian novels. Dystopian novels are books in which the author imagines a future world gone badly wrong. We read Kurt Vonnegut's Fahrenheit 451 with its book burning. We read Animal Farm, and of course we read George Orwell's 1984, which was, well, positively Orwellian. Layered on that, there were plenty of dystopian movies all around the mechanized world of Blade Runner, the climate wasteland of Mad Max. Even more recently, we've had vivid glimpses of the totalitarian worlds of The Hunger Games and The Handmaid's Tale and the desolation of Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. Worlds gone badly wrong, imagined, but maybe a bit too possible. I've noticed that my teachers and professors didn't assign any utopian novels. Novels in which the author imagines a future world better than the one we know. I guess, I guess that wasn't in the curriculum. Utopian novels actually came first, but as a writer in the New Yorker notes, dystopias follow utopias like thunder follows lightning. <laughs> utopias are the flash of light. Dystopia, the rumble that wrecks the world. A utopia is a paradise, a dystopia is paradise lost, but even utopias offer a far-off future 
rather than one right here at hand. Now, interestingly, dystopia comes from the Greek meaning bad place, and I've always thought that utopia came from the Greek meaning good place. That makes sense, bad place and good place. But utopia actually comes from the Greek meaning no place. The good place is no place. That's at least ironic and a little sad. Both dystopias and utopias imagine these future worlds, good or bad, and in so doing, they offer a critique of what's wrong in the present world. And each, in their own way, also hints at some kind of hope, something the world ought to be, could be, might be, if only. We arrived this morning in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we hear the beautiful assurance of the poetry of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will receive comfort. These assurances many of us have heard from childhood. We hold them deeply in our hearts. We put them up on the walls of our homes. We sing them. For the downtrodden, they are timeless words of encouragement and hope. Blessed are the peacemakers and the meek and the merciful. And, and in the beauty of this poetry, there is so much more going on. In these opening words of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to describe nothing less than a brave new world breaking forth even now in Christ. A brave new world breaking forth into the old crumbling order that for too long has pushed people down and harmed and hurt. And it's not, it's not an imagined world in some far-off future. This brave new world is both a present and a future reality opening up right here, right now in the experience of Christ with the insistent invitation that we live it now and transform the world. Now I know it may be problematic to use the phrase brave new world to describe what Jesus is doing because that is, after all, the title of a dystopian novel. But before it was that, it was a quote from Shakespeare, from The Tempest. In The Tempest, the characters are pulled out of a world gone wrong and shipwrecked on a desert island. Prospero and his young daughter Miranda meet up with the men who exiled them, and on the island, as often happens in Shakespeare, confusion ensues and everything gets sorted out. By the end, hatred and enmity are replaced with forgiveness, love abounds, and the world is set right. The young Miranda stands in the midst of all this and says, Oh, wonder! How many goodly creatures there are here. How beauteous humankind is. Oh, brave new world that has such people in it. In her experience of a healed humanity, she proclaims a brave new world. In the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, so too does Jesus. The world of the Gospel is a world gone badly wrong, the Roman Empire oppressing, Herod the puppet king in a genocidal rage, most folks living lives of bare subsistence, Matthew's community reeling from the trauma of being cast out. In the midst of that, Jesus is born. The Magi come seeking one who may be the Messiah or more. Jesus begins to gather a community. 
begins to heal our broken places, and he proclaims the kingdom of heaven is near. He proclaims a brave new world. And as chapter 5 opens, Jesus goes up a mountain, sits down to teach, and says, and let me tell you what this brave new world looks like. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus flips the order of things. He riffs on this word blessed in the Greek makarioi, some translate it as happy, happier those, and that's, that's not wrong. But I think of biblical blessing, though, as active and operative, something that changes things, just like a curse lets loose evil in the world, blessing lets loose good. A word of blessing is an operative word. It does something. Those who are blessed participate in that. They receive blessing and are transformed, and then they emanate blessing, transforming the world around them. In the world into which Jesus speaks, folks would have expected the rich to be blessed. The powerful, the ones who enjoy the good things, the one who control the good things. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. I've wondered a good bit about that poor in spirit. The Gospel of Luke says it's differently. Luke's blessed are the poor feels much clearer to me. But this week I read it explained like this. Think of poor in spirit as the opposite of haughty in spirit. The poor in spirit are the humble. Those who see the way the world works, the gap between what we have and ought to have, whether more or less, they are those who live aware. Blessed are the meek, not the ones who recklessly wield power over for their own benefit. No, the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Not just the land, but the earth. Jesus proclaims a brave new world animated not by power over, but by a mutuality of power. And he proclaims a world enlivened by a mutuality of care. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, a life, a world driven by mercy. You extend mercy to me, and I to you, and we to them, and all of us to the whole world. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are motivated and working not to maintain systems of domination and self-interest, but centered and grounded in justice, in systems where those who have been held down low are lifted up. In the Beatitudes, Jesus announces, describes, and embodies a brave new world characterized by a mutuality of power and a mutuality of care. And notice that last little bit. Blessed are you when people revile you. When they say all sorts of evil against you, rejoice and be glad you're living the life prophets have lived. What? This brave new world isn't some far-off future. It's not some wished-for fantasy. It is here. It is now. It is real. It's right here in the midst of things, breaking forth and challenging a crumbling world order, stirring things up, reshaping the world. How do you know? Just look at the resistance. 
into a world that chews people up, Jesus announces a brave new world that honors and dignifies and lifts up our humanity. A brave new world that in Christ introduces us all over again to a loving God that then in love reshapes our lives on the basis of loving relationship. Blessed are the poor in spirit and the merciful and the meek, all those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice, for the happiness and thriving of all living beings, a God-beloved, God-drenched humanity. Oh, wonder how many goodly creatures there are here, how beauteous humankind is, oh, brave new world that has such people in it. I read somewhere this week, someone described the list of Beatitudes as addressing those who need help, those who help, and then you when you live it out. That's actually the way it rolls out. Blessed are those who need help. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who help. Blessed are the merciful, those who hunger for thirst for righteousness. Blessed are you. When people speak ill of you for going against the order of things, for lifting up those who have been held low. This week, you may want to try to write your own beatitude using that simple pattern. Think of those who need help, those who give help, and what that might look like if you live it out. What might the blessing of this brave new world in Christ look like in you in us. Here are just two that I came up with. Well, actually four. They're couplets. Blessed are the hungry, for they will find food. Blessed are those who stock a community fridge, for with them, God will nourish the world. Or, blessed are the refugees, for they will find shelter. Blessed are those who provide shelter, for together we will find a home. I've been listening to this podcast series that features an extended interview with the Dalai Lama. The journalist Dan Harris got amazing access. He was invited to to go to Dharamsala, India, the Dalai Lama's residence in exile, and follow the Dalai Lama around for a full two weeks. While they were there, the Dalai Lama received a conference of young activists from around the world, folks doing serious work, serving in war zones and opposing oppressive regimes. At one point, those young activists get an audience with the Dalai Lama where they get to ask him questions. So they ask, how do we stand up to injustice and change the world? And the Dalai Lama replies, there are seven or eight billion people in the world. We are all the same. We must learn the oneness of all beings. These young activists ask again, but what can we do? What can we do? And the Dalai Lama says the same thing. Seven to eight billion people, all the same, oneness of all beings. And it happens again, and he gives the same answer. And finally, one activist raises his hand and says, Your Holiness, with all due respect, your words feel overly simplistic and sentimental. 
It requires more than a shift to realize we are all one. It requires political action. It requires power. He said that to the Dalai Lama. Talk about uncomfortable. Just watching the video, you can feel it, but you can also sense that the young activists in the room are all thinking that. Another one chimes in, I work with women in Afghanistan who are fighting for their rights while the Taliban is literally holding a gun to their heads. How do you talk oneness of all beings with the Taliban? And again, the Dalai Lama says, there are seven to eight billion people on the planet. We are all the same, the oneness of all beings. And the audience goes on, uh, feels a little off. But then at the end, almost as it's over, as his assistants are helping him up and taking off his mic, the Dalai Lama adds this, I want to share my practice, he says. My daily practice is altruism. Focus on the well-being of others, the well-being of the world. This builds inner strength. This makes fearless. He points to altruism, living for the well-being of others. This, he says, is how we change ourselves and our world. I heard a news story this week on NPR. An NPR reporter went back to Kentucky six months after the devastating floods of last summer. They went back to interview Gwen Kristen, whose family owns the IGA grocery store in small rural town of Isom, Kentucky. It's more than a grocery for that small town. It's the center of their community. They'd interviewed Gwen right after the flood, and Gwen had told them, now don't leave here and forget about us. So they went back. And in this interview, Gwen described how the floodwaters had wrecked their family business, their store to the point that it was condemned by health officials. Their insurance didn't cover damage for flooding, but with support from the community and a tough-to-get small business loan and a generous gift from someone she calls a missionary of mercy, they've rebuilt and they'll reopen in April. But... Her employees' Kentucky unemployment pay runs out on February 5th. They open in April. Unemployment pay runs out on February 5th. So for February and March, Gwen will pay her employees out of her own pocket before they turn to work without any revenue coming until they can all work again. She says that this will leave her family with no savings. But then she says this. But this is something we have to do. And in early April, they'll gather there together at the store and they'll have what she calls a soft open where they just open the doors and welcome people back in. Oh, brave new world that has such people in it. I've noticed something that's odd, maybe even ironic, about dystopian and utopian stories. 
I think dystopian writers actually think the world is pretty okay right now, but that any minute the world could go kerflui. So they warn us of a dangerous future that is all too possible. I think utopian writers think the world is already pretty messed up. So they write with this vision of a far-off future that could be so much better, and they try to encourage us into that future someday. The Gospel of Matthew doesn't neatly fit into either of those paradigms. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus takes the world that he finds seriously and honestly, all the oppression, all the suffering, all the love, all the humanity, the good, the bad, the indifferent. Jesus arrives with his healing touch, and he introduces us all over again to a loving God who from the beginning of time has desired nothing but our good. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, a brave new world here and now, not in some far-off future, but in the midst of you, in the midst of us right now. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall receive comfort. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are all you who hunger and thirst for justice and righteousness. And these beatitudes, they are just the start.